0: Thank you all for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm so happy that you have joined us for our show. I, I have to start out by saying that um, today's show really could not have been more perfectly timed uh, for me personally. Next week, next Monday, I celebrate what Janice, you know, my wife Janice, says is a, uh, a milestone birthday Uh, I'll turn 75, which is an extraordinarily daunting number for me. Um, And it's hard in facing that birthday to not think about the ways in which I may face afflictions of age, how I'll deal with them, uh, the ways in which my body will take control, betray a lot of the long-held beliefs that I've had that I am in charge of what happens to me, So when I picked up Frank Bruni's book, and I'll introduce Frank much more formally in just a couple of minutes, I was deeply moved to read that at a much younger age uh, than I'm at, he had discovered the uncontrollable nature of physical affliction, but didn't take shelter in self-pity. Instead, he turned it into a transformative journey of celebrating the best of life, but also recognizing that we all struggle with uh, issues uh, ourselves. Um, We're going to talk about exactly what happened to Frank in a moment, but I do want to read for you, just very briefly, um, what he has to say about the title of this book, basically. It's the passage that the title comes from The Beauty of Dusk. Frank talks about the fact that when he decided to turn lemons into lemonades, when he realized that all, all uh, uh, dark clouds have silver linings, he realized that he was dealing with cliché. Uh, but then he goes on and says uh, just uh, this brief passage. Um, it is darkest before dawn, although my story isn't about dawn. It's about dusk. It's about those first real inklings that the day isn't forever and that light inexorably fades. It's about a rising and then peaking consciousness that you're on borrowed and finite time. It's about a shifting temperature, an altered ambiance. And it's about how paradoxical, enriching, and beautiful that dusk can be. Um, joining me to talk to Frank, as he is on every Thursday show, uh, my AJC partner, Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin, Uh, As we get set to introduce Frank, I know this book had a deep resonance for you
1: as well. Bill, yeah. So I'm just honored to be here. And I know the show is a little bit different than what we usually do on Thursdays, but um, I would tell the listeners that they're in for a real treat. Um, I, too, have recently had a milestone birthday. I like to gig you about being younger than you, so we won't get into that. But I will say this. It's a beautifully written book, uh, and it grabbed me by the lapels and shook me as I read it. And I'm really looking forward to talking to Frank about it.
0: All right, let's get right to it. Frank Bruni had a 25-year career at the New York Times. He was a White House correspondent, served as Rome Bureau chief, became the restaurant uh, critic. He uh, writes uh, uh, op-ed pieces for the newspaper. Um, And Frank, I think this is your fourth or fifth book. Have I got that right?
2: <laughs> I should. First of all, thanks for having me. I should be able to answer sure. that. I, I think. I think maybe it's six, if we count my um, oh. uncharacteristic meatloaf cookbook.
0: I, what do you mean, if we count? I think that's a masterpiece, right, wrote a cookbook. What is it? 49 meatloaf recipes of famous people. How? I mean, that's a great book, Frank. Well,
2: you know, if you're a meatloaf lover, I suppose it is.
1: it's a singular book. Let's
2: put it
0: that way. Um, we, we should point out that, of course, you've written about, uh, you wrote a book on George uh, W. Bush, you wrote a book about the uh, sexual abuses in the Catholic Church, and then a memoir about your dealing with body image, eating disorders, and, and other issues. And, and the reason I mention that, I think it's called Born Round, and I mention that because this book, like that one, um, it, in those books, you have allowed us, behind the veil, to see deep into who you are as a real uh, person. Is that, is that a hard thing to do when you sit down at your computer or whatever you write on to say, okay, here's how vulnerable I'm going to be right this moment?
2: Um, it's a little bit hard. It can, I mean, you're definitely exposing yourself uh, in a manner. But to me, it's less about whether it's hard or easy as whether it's necessary or not. I feel really strongly if you're trying to convey emotion in a book, if you're trying to move people with what you're writing and you hold your punches and you edit your yourself and you, and you, and you don't share everything that that is, that is germane and relevant. um, then Then I think you're cheating the reader and you're cheating the experience and you're undermining the material. I feel if you're going to write a book in the realm of memoir, you owe your readers and you owe yourself complete candor.
0: Which, exactly, uh, which is exactly what you do. Let's do this. Um, let's give our listeners an opportunity to understand what happened to you. And, um, and then we'll talk about how you have dealt with it and about the book. Um, you recorded this book. And I have to say, I want to play the first few paragraphs in your, the, the voice that you used when you recorded it because you read it so beautifully. So let's listening, listen to Frank Bruni reading the opening passages from The Beauty of Dusk.
2: They say that death comes like a thief in the night. Lesser vandals have the same memo. The affliction that stole my vision, or at least a big chunk of it, did so as I slept. I went to bed seeing the world one way, I woke up seeing it another. I went to bed believing that I was more or less in control of my life, that the unfinished business, unrealized dreams, and other disappointments were essentially failures of industry and imagination and could probably be redeemed with a fierce enough effort. I woke up to the realization of how ludicrous that was. I went to bed with more grievances than I could count. I woke up with more gratitude than I can measure. My story is one of loss. It's also one of gain.
0: Frank Bruni, reading from The Beauty of Dusk. Uh, Frank, you uh, subsequently found that you had had a rare stroke of the optic nerve, your right eye, and that you had lost vision that would not be restored. And more than that, the doctors told you that there was a chance that you could have the same stroke in your left eye and be blind, right?
2: Yeah, yes. And that was probably the most difficult thing of all to deal with um, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically. Um, I was originally told that there was a 40 percent chance, um, according to according to statistics and the medical literature, that the same thing would happen in my left eye. And later I learned that the conventional wisdom is more like 20 percent. But 20 percent is pretty terrifying when the stakes are seeing or not seeing, when the stakes are blindness. And so I think probably the, the hardest work I had ahead of me and the most important part of my journey was not giving into self pity and terror about that, um, and and figuring out a way to live with that very with that very kind of clear sword dangling over my head and nonetheless live contentedly,
1: productively, um, optimistically. Uh, Frank, one of the things about the book um, that's compelling, I think, uh, is that. Upon um, this happening to you, I don't know how to describe it, except to say you went all journalist on the situation, right? (laughs) And talk about that a little bit, like what your first reactions were, uh, you know, and and how important it was to, I guess, sort of get that out of the way eventually. So,
2: You know, I was extremely fortunate and extremely well-served by the fact that my reflexes were journalistic ones. My training was journalistic. And so I – Fairly quickly, I mean, after a period of melodrama, um, after a brief bout of self-pity, you know, after that sort of thing, I pretty quickly sprung into information gathering mode. Um, I knew because I'm a journalist and because of the way I'm wired that the more information I got, the more I knew, the more empowered and the less like a passive victim of all of this I would feel. And so I pretty quickly enrolled in a clinical trial. Um, it was very much a judgment call whether to go through it or not, because you could end up getting a placebo because this clinical trial involved a needle straight into my eye. Um, I began interviewing uh, prominent neuro-ophthalmologists, <laughs> a kind of medical specialty I didn't even know existed before, um, and, and on and on. And I also, most importantly, and this is what ended up shaping and informing the book, and this is sort of the, the, the method of the book, I began interviewing people in my life already or people I was just meeting who had faced early on medical crises, who had struggled with very difficult things, who, who'd been at the sorts of really fraught and, and fearful crossroads that I was at, and had gotten to the far side of them um, successfully and in a healthy fashion, and with full lives and with robust spirits. And I wanted them to tell me. I interviewed them about how they did that because I felt that I could learn from it, and I did, and I also felt that I could then impart those lessons and that wisdom to readers. And so the book is as much their story as it is my story.
0: Um, you, 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 uh, you, you talk about the clinical trial that you entered uh, quickly, uh, and, and we should uh, talk about that just a little bit because it was a daunting process that you had to go through. Describe that first trial and what it involved.
2: Well, the, fir- the first trial uh, was they were testing a compound, and the delivery system was to deliver it with a shot into the affected eye. Um, And you had to commit to having that done once a month for three months. Um, And you had to commit to that not knowing whether you would actually be getting the treatment or a placebo, what dose of the treatment. You know, you really are uh, presenting yourself, surrendering yourself as a subject in that situation. Um, But that felt to me like a course of action, like an exercise of agency that, that, again, made me feel less like I was just having things happen to me and more like I was finding ways to respond to those things um, that made me feel a little bit more in control and sort of proud of what I was doing. I actually ended up doing two clinical trials. That one Mm -hmm. was abandoned by the pharmaceutical company mid-course because nobody, including me, was seeing any results. Um, And then I qualified for a second one, which, while much more endurable, in a way was even more uncharacteristic for me. It was six months of twice-weekly injections that you gave yourself in your thigh or your stomach or your shoulder. And when I say uncharacteristic, you are talking to probably the least dexterous human being who has ever walked the planet Earth. I mean, I, I frequently don't get the tying of my shoelaces correct, or I tie them in a way that I can't untie them. It took a sequence of male relatives to teach me as a kid to tie a necktie, and I still do it so badly that back when I appeared on CNN frequently, when I got emails from viewers, more often than not, they said, "What? What? You can't tie a tie? Someone should teach you to tie a tie properly." Um, and yet, and yet, and this is really important because I learned some, some crucial lessons about our, our abilities to adapt and our kind of nimbleness as, as humans. I ended up with these syringes and these needles and the sharps contained. I ended up being able to prepare my needles and deliver these injections to myself in about 20, 25 seconds flat, you know, like, like it was nothing. And, um, and that's a particular thing, but it's also a metaphor for, I think, what you can discover about yourself when circumstances demand that you discover it.
0: You, you know, with Kevin, one of the things that I noticed, I bet, bet you did too, is it, what, what Frank just talked about, you know, uh, being the least dexterous person around. The, the book, he shares with us in this book. All these self-doubts. He, When he woke up with his cloudy right eye, what was the first thing you say in the book, Frank? Kevin, he says, uh, sloppy, lazy Frank. I drank too much last night. Somehow I caused this because of my weakness as a human being. I can't tie my shoelace. I mean, Bruni is really, Kevin, uh, very capable of saying to us, man, I feel in so many ways that I'm just an inadequate human being, which I take great solace in.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Bill, I would say – so I'm reading this book by one of the most prominent uh, columnists for years and and staff members of the New York Times. And um, as you read the book, you, of course, uh, can't help but be impressed with his ability with our language. And then he kind of says, look, I'm not as confident as I look. And uh, I like the part where, uh, Frank, you describe um, how you are always a few minutes late when you are going to interview someone for a column. So talk about why you're always a few minutes late. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: I would find whenever I arranged an interview with someone, especially somebody quote unquote important and even more so if the person was well known, um, I had so much nervousness in me that I was going to ask the right questions, that they were going to come out of my mouth in the right way, um, that, that I would say them in the right kind of tone uh, and do a good job. And so I would frequently be hemming and hawing and wringing my hands about that. And I would start the interview like three or four minutes late um, because whatever kind of points the subject docked me for being late, I needed those extra minutes to take a few deep breaths and steady myself. And, you know... This is an important part of, of my journey, and, and I, I talk about this at length in the book in a, in a chapter called The Sandwich Board Theory of Life, which is, mm-hmm. which is the chapter a lot of people focus on. It's what the New York Times excerpted when they ran an excerpt of the book. We all make these assumptions about the people around us, about the glide paths that they're on, about the confidence that they seem to feel. And we make these assumptions based on nothing but appearances. And an important part of my journey is, I think, something that can be an important part of life, and I wish I'd come to it sooner. And there's the realization that, that no matter what people are showing on the outside, most people are carrying around some measure of pain. Most people are recent graduates of or are in the midst of incredible struggles. And to understand that is to be able to cast whatever you're going through in a much different light. To understand that is to be able to avoid You talked, you had a beautiful phrase early in this program, the shelter of self-pity. It's actually the trap of self-pity. And the best way to avoid that trap is to see the people around you accurately um, and to understand that you can't, that most pain, most struggle, most insecurity, most anxiety is entirely invisible. Um, Once you realize that, I think you have a better sense of your place in the world um, you have a better sense of a certain amount of struggle as the default human condition, and I think you end up having a healthier, more realistic attitude about life.
1: Yeah, Frank, I would say that sandwich board um, theory of life part of the book, which has gotten a lot of attention, I, I would tell people listening if they haven't read the book yet that when you uh, engage with that part of the book, I-, I I bet you'll do what I did, which is put the book down and call someone you care about
2: That is, that
1: is so good to hear.
2: (laughs) I mean, you know, when I, when I wrote that chapter, it felt to me like something like I had something to say, it felt important to me. I didn't kind of say to myself, what do I want people's response to this chapter to be, but I can think of no better response. So thank you for feeling that way and saying that.
0: Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the way you write about the sandwich board theory. What if we all did reveal publicly uh, the anxieties, the illnesses, the disappointments in our life? What if we were willing to uh, air them more uh, openly? I I will tell you quickly uh, that my 25-year-old daughter, for my last birthday a year ago, um, had a T-shirt made for me which expressed my entire philosophy of how I walk through life, Frank. It said, "Fooled him again," (laughs) and and she 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 captured. I I am like you, Frank. Uh, In starting this show today, I thought I'm going to be talking with Kevin Riley, to one of the most uh, uh, well-respected journalists uh, in American journalism. God, I hope I can ask some questions that make sense. And, we, and I think Kevin Riley knows what that's about, too, because Kevin studies so hard for these shows and is so concerned, not just in the author shows, but when we talk about politics of the day, which is what we mostly do. So I think you tapped it. It's one of the reasons, Frank, your book moved me so deeply, because you, you understand who we are deep inside of us, and you were willing to talk about it.
2: Um, I think it's funny that you said fooled them again. I just want to react to that because, you know, we, we're we all, I think all of us talking here are well-read people. I think most of our listeners are probably well-read people. So we've all come across the phrase imposter syndrome. And we know yes. that, that that we know that the overwhelming majority of successful and even, and maybe especially hyper-successful people um, suffer inside from imposter syndrome, but we know that and we read that and we forget it, you know, and then we still act in a way where we're intimidated or we make assumptions about that person's degree of contentment and self-satisfaction. And I don't know why that is. I just think, I think we would have, our interactions with each other would be so much more empathetic and so much more meaningful. Um, If we kind of just, if we, if we really took in what we know, which is that person whose life seems so enviable um that person may be dealing with things we have no idea of i i begin that sandwich board theory of life chapter talking about anthony bourdain um and mm-hmm. i mean I, I can't count the number of minutes in my life when i envied anthony bourdain and thought mm-hmm. if only i had his height if only i had his metabolism if only i had his off-the-cuff way with words that he was a genius of the of the spontaneous comment And I looked at him and I saw pure joy, pure confidence and all of that. And of course, Anthony Bourdain ended his life um, long before it should have ended, which tells us that there was a dimension of his existence that was one of great pain. Um, We need to sit with that for a second, because Anthony Bourdain is not alone uh, in being that kind of contradiction, that kind of paradox. Um, And I think when we're aware of that, as I said, I think we're able to put our own lives, our own struggles, our own anxieties uh, into a much healthier perspective.
0: Kevin?
1: Well, um, one of the parts of the book that um, I think does that and really also uh, uh, was very moving to me was the parts where you talk about your parents. Um, in, in your situation, your mom had been dead for a while when, when you were hit with this um a sight problem, but your dad was still around. But you bring them up, and you you talk about them because of how your your perceptions of them change as a result of what happened. And I, my parents are both gone, and so I visit with thoughts about them all the time. And I think listeners should hear some of what you, how you, your perceptions change because many of them probably have either lost parents or their parents are around, and it was just a very compelling. Set of passages in the book i I think frank
2: so well thank you for that um and it's a privilege to bring up my parents and to bring up my mother in particular because she did die young at 61 of a a rare form of uterine cancer Um, but she lived with that cancer uh, more than twice as long as doctors said she really had a chance to Um, and she lived so fully and robustly Um, and she she was so clear on the fact that yes this cancer um, had made her a victim of sorts and yes uh, it was probably going to end her life much sooner than her life should end. But she wasn't going to let it score a double victory over her. She was not going to cower in fear. She was not going to restrict her activities beyond what she absolutely had to do because of diminished uh, you know, diminished ability. She, she decided that she was going to live as fully um, and as fearlessly with cancer as possible um, because the alternative to that was to cheat herself out of whatever joys were left in the years that were left. Um, And, I mean, that's a much more extreme situation than the one I encountered. But that example um, of choosing to be as resilient as possible, of flexing your strength rather than contemplating your weakness, um, of stretching to the limit of your remaining abilities rather than curtailing everything in your life, that example, that model was so important to me. Um, and so emotional to me because I believe I showed her my respect for it and for her in real time. But I found myself wishing I could travel back and say, I understand better now than I ever did. Um, just how wise and just how heroic your response was. And I, I want I, I want I hope I paid adequate tribute to it. And if not, I'm doing so in these pages.
0: Oh, um- Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. A lot more to talk about uh, with Frank Bruni. His new book is The Beauty of Dusk. Kevin Riley joins me for the conversation. We'll be back in just a moment. AJC editor Kevin Riley joins me as we talk with our special guest Frank Bruni, longtime New York Times journalist, uh, author of a new book, The Beauty of Dusk. And by the way, Frank, You're at Duke now where you're teaching, and we should point out that there aren't a whole lot of people who are paying attention to classes, I would assume, on the Duke campus today, tonight. (laughs) Duke
2: plays (laughs) Texas Tech,
0: and it could be the end of Mike Krzyzewski's career in college basketball.
2: (laughs) Yes, uh, the campus does tend to get a little bit obsessed with these moments. I'm I'm not a basketball (laughs) fan, and I also, I'm in a weird position. I'm a graduate. I'm living in Chapel Hill. I'm a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill, but then I drive 20 yeah. miles to teach at Duke. So I try to be a kind of Switzerland in this situation. I don't choose sides. I hang back. I, you know, I don't get involved.
0: <laughs> I understand that. Um, we've talked a, a lot uh, already about how, the, how you came out the other end of dealing with this sudden blindness in your right eye, the result of a rare uh, stroke of the optic nerve, um, but we, what we haven't talked about as much, and I think we should, is the transformation and how you went through it. So with that in mind, I was really struck by a, a page in the book. First, you quote E.L. Doctoro, who famously said that writing a novel is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far in front of you as the headlights, and beyond that, you don't know, what you're, you know where you're heading, which is how he wrote his books. But then you really, uh, for me, cinch the deal by talking about Anne Lamott, Uh, Bird by Bird, (laughs) a favorite book in this household. Um, Explain what Anne Lamott, where that title came from, and why it was so meaningful along with the doctoral quote to you as you dealt with your condition.
2: Well, bird, bird by Bird is, in fact, her different kind of metaphor for the same thing that Dr. O is saying. Um, yes. And, uh, and I may get this wrong because it's been a while since I visited that page of the book or uh, <laughs> read Bird by Bird, although I've read it several times. But she basically talks about an incident in her brother's childhood when he had procrastinated and he had this big term paper due about birds. Um, and he was frozen by the fact that the task ahead of him was so monumental and how to even start. And his father, to con- her, their father, to calm her brother down, said, bird by bird, buddy, take it bird by bird. Um, and that's the same thing as the headlights. And, and the lesson of that, and it's such an important one, um, is that if you, if you look at the entire expanse of the challenge ahead of you, of the road ahead of you, of everything you're going to have to get through and master, you are going to be uh, daunted and frozen by that. So just do it a bit at a time. Take this challenge and then the next one and then the next one. Take this stretch of road within your headlights range and then the next one and the next one. And I think it's wonderful advice. It's a little bit incomplete, though, because I think you need to do two things at once, or at least I did. You need to kind of break it up like that. You need to just get through the hour, get through the day, get through the week. But you do need to make some plans and adjustments in your life that leave you in the best possible situation if things turn out a certain way. So, I mean, a small, you know, I I, I right away, and this is kind of, was mind-blowing to me at the time, but I mean, I right away, just kind of instinctively called the Times HR office. I was still a full-time employee of the New York Times at the time. Called them and said, um, am I enrolled in the maximum amount of disability insurance? And what do I need to change in my paycheck to go to the maximum? Um, and that's a small thing, but it was like, that was a smart thing to do. So I needed, in that sense, to look at all the birds. But once I'd done that, I needed to go bird by bird.
0: How did that manifest itself in a spiritual way, in the way in which you looked at your own mortality and, and the fragility of life and the way in which we are not in control of our own bodies, which is the theme in this book that was, again, something that moved me deeply? Your body betrays you. Your body suddenly says, no, pal, you're going to lose the vision in your eye. Sorry, it's not up to you.
2: No, and, and yeah, for me, it was vision. For someone else, it'll be something else. For me, it was at the age of 52. For someone else, it'll be, if they're lucky, at the age of 82 instead, or 92. Um, I mean, I, 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 I describe it in sort of um, violent, extreme terms in the book, but I, but I stand by the sentence. Each of our bodies are time bombs, but each of them detonates in a different way. And I think that when you have a detonation like I did at 52 or like my friend Dory, who's in the book, who's diagnosed with Parkinson's at 35, you're essentially getting an advanced crash course in aging ahead of time, an accelerated, you know, a course in accelerated aging or an accelerated course in aging. Um, and I think part of the way you deal with it is to realize, again, that it's universal, you know, that, that, that this, is, this is a normal phase and stage of life. Um, and I just felt very strongly that if I focused on um, how how the cookie had crumbled for me in a bad way, if I focused on what I could no longer do, what what, what what I'd lost, what had been taken from me, it wasn't going to bring any of those things back, and it was going to trap me in a pretty negative and, and unhappy place. There was so much that was still left, and, and I mean, I'll give you just one example. I mean, I... I sometimes still want to rage over the fact that when I when I write something, I have always I had always been a clean writer who made very few errors even on the first draft and a fast writer. Now I have to write more slowly and I have to circle back because one facet of my vision impairment is that I make typos that I never made before. I suffer from a kind of analog to dyslexia that I never suffered from before. And there are times when I want to be enraged by that and I want to feel sorry for myself and I And, you know, I want to be sad. But I'm still writing. People, someone still wants me to send words to them. Somebody's still reading my words. To not pay as much attention to that and to feel enormous gratitude for that, I mean, that would be the greatest crime and perversion of all. Because that's as important as whatever extra effort or time I need to produce those words
1: Wow, Uh, Frank, you mentioned your friend Dory uh, there as you uh, just Sort of in passing. But one of the, I would say, uh, charming things about the book is all the different people we get to meet uh, that you bring to us for various reasons. And uh, in many cases, just to highlight um, how, how their challenges were so much greater than your own and what you learned from it. But talk more about Dory or if you'd rather another character, you introduce us a person, I shouldn't say character, a person, a real person that you introduce us to in the book that is uh, sort of a favorite one of yours or a compelling one.
2: Uh, Well, I'll mention Dory quickly, and then I'll move on to a guy named David Tatel who's in the book, who's also, who also really Mm -hmm. stays me. But Dory is a friend of mine from college who, uh, I mean, just such a beautiful person, such a beautiful woman, She, in her mid 30s, was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and it took a pretty fast and severe course. Um, Dory cannot move uh, with anything near the fluidity that she did before. She used to be a very uh, accomplished runner. Um, Dory, uh, you know, her her muscles in her face don't work properly, and she has to uh, use great effort to get words out. Um, She has had surgery on her brain for kind of cords and batteries to be implanted, having to do with uh, a therapy for Parkinson's and she ha- she made a decision early on and and again such an example and a model she made a decision early on that she was going to attend to all of that stuff but she was not going to be defined by it she was going to do in real time bird by bird what she needed to do to make sure that she managed her parkinsons ha- parkinsons however well her case should be managed that she was not going to give into sadness she was not going to give into anger she was not going to give into self pity because those led nowhere Um, and so, and so I write about that in the book and she was an enormous help to me and the example she said, but I also wanted to mention, uh, David Tadel. So in the book are people like Dory, whom I'd known for a long time, but never thought to interview about what they'd been through and what wisdom they had for us. But there were also people I met along the way as a function of my lost vision. And one is a, is a recently retired judge, David Tadel. He was on the U S district court of appeals, one tick below the Supreme court, Um, had an extraordinarily distinguished career as a jurist at the zenith of his profession, um, and had done all of that despite having gone blind uh, from retinitis pigmentosa in his early 30s. And I got to know him. I became friends with him. I became friends with his wife, Edie. We would have long, boozy dinners together. And one night, I'd been chatting with him in his chambers, and we were due five miles away at his apartment to meet Edie for dinner. And I said to him when we were ready to go, do you want me to call an Uber or a Lyft? Because I figured that's how we're going to get home. He says, no, 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 we'll take the Metro. And I thought, well, how's that going to work? The Metro's eight blocks away. And I thought, okay, he's going to grab hold of my arm, and I'm going to lead him to the Metro and lead him onto the train. Not at all. He had learned over the years. He had learned so well how how to notice and heed certain auditory cues. He'd also memorized his physical environment so well that in fact he was leading me to the metro. I mean, I was there as a failsafe, but he was doing everything on his own, crossing city streets, walking into the metro station, finding the train platform, getting on the train. And when we sat down and I kind of marveled to him about how he had led me and I had done nothing in this equation except keep him company, he said, Frank, you know, starfish can regrow limbs, but that's nothing compared to what people can do. And he had just shown me that Um, And that is a kind of, that is a lesson and a promise that I think is of enormous, um, invaluable reassurance as we age and as our bodies perhaps detonate, detonate in ways we can't imagine.
0: Um, Kevin, uh, the story, the way that Frank has told it, is another example of what you said much earlier in the show. Uh, in a way, he, he, you know, Frank establishes these relationships with these people, but he's still sort of talking about them like the journalist who wants to know more about their life. <laughs> he wants to,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that reminds me of something else. I just have to ask, of course, uh, Frank. You also talk a little bit about some very well-known people, but. I, so normally we talk politics on this show so I thought hey John Kerry why don't you talk to us a little bit about that because I found that part of the book particularly interesting because I learned things about Kerry that you know I, I just didn't know
2: well you know I, I had known Bob Kerry before I interviewed him for the book about seven or eight years maybe and I should mention since you're a political show how I got to know him because it is such a It is such an inspiring example of a politician heeding his conscience and not poll numbers, and there's way too little of that in our world. But I met Bob Kerry because in 2012, when he, as a former governor of Nebraska, as a former senator from Nebraska, he had been lured back into politics. Democrats thought, if there's a chance to turn the Senate seat from Nebraska blue, um, the only way we can do it is if Bob Kerry runs again because he's such a favorite son of Nebraska. And so he was uh, campaigning anew um, for the Senate uh, from Nebraska against a Republican. Um, And that was the year, if you'll recall, in 2012, where on many state ballots, there were the first ever statewide referendums where citizens could weigh in on whether they wanted the legalization of same-sex marriage. It was on the ballot in Maryland, in Maine, in Washington state, and by the way, passed in all those places. Um, but this was the year when that was under great debate. And in, and in states like Nebraska, um, same-sex marriage, gay marriage, marriage equality was not a popular thing. I learned through the grapevine that Bob Kerry, whom I'd never met before then, was making it a point in every one of his stump speeches, every one of his campaign appearances, to voice his support for marriage equality. And that was mm-hmm. n- in no way a politically wise thing to do. I found his cell phone number. I called him and I said, Bob Carey, this is Frank Brady, the New York Times. I want to write a column about that particular thing. And I want to meet you in Nebraska and talk to you there. He said, great. I'm all aboard. whatever. His various aides kept on trying to cancel the interview because they did not want him to do this politically unwise thing. And he kept overruling them to do the interview. Um, because he felt so strongly about the issue, so I just want to say that about Bob Carey, I could not could not have been more impressed. It it began and cemented a friendship between us, but over the years and many many heart to heart conversations, where he made clear to me that his life was an open book. He would talk to me over tequila about having once dated the actress Deborah Winger. He gave me every signal that nothing was out of bounds for him. I had never asked him about losing uh, a significant portion of his leg uh, in Vietnam. You know, he was a Vietnam vet. And I had always been curious, what did that do to your spirit? What did that do to your life? How terrible was that in real time? Does it stay with you still? Only when I began, only when I went through what I went through and only when I began to to research and write the book, did I say to him, Bob, would you be willing to talk about this? And the answer was an immediate yes. It was, it was even, his answer even kind of harbored some relief and gratitude that somebody had asked him about this because all too often. We are too polite and too afraid to be intrusive, and we don't give people an opportunity that they might well want to talk about what they've been through. And over the course of a lunch, we talked about nothing else for 90 minutes, and uh, and that's in the book. And I use him in large measure as an example of the fact that people have these struggles and these stories to share, um, and for a variety of really silly reasons, we don't give them a chance to share those stories, and we don't tease their wisdom out of them, out of them.
0: Uh, You know, it's interesting, the the Kerry story for me, Frank, because I covered Kerry among all the other Democrats who were running for president in 92. And uh, his his first uh, press secretary was Mike McCurry, who after Kerry dropped out, Mike went on to be Clinton's press secretary, ended up, of course, as a White House communicate or press secretary. But the point is, uh, watching Kerry in campaign stops around uh, New Hampshire, around Iowa, you make a really important point. You never would suspect that he had been dealt such a blow uh, in Vietnam, and it was always difficult to do just what you're talking about, to keep it in your mind that this was a guy who had overcome a disability. With Bob Dole, who I also covered pretty closely, you always knew because of that paralyzed uh, a hand yeah. and, and the pen that he always had in it. Um, uh, although you also have to say that Dole was a great example of somebody who took a terrible, terrible uh, situation and turned it around and transformed his life in the most positive way you could imagine, Frank.
2: Bob Dole, and as you're saying Bob Dole, I'm thinking also of John McCain. Um, if you looked carefully yeah. at John McCain and the way he held his arms, I can't remember whether it was one arm or both arms that he couldn't lift above his head.
1: And yeah, that
2: was the yeah. legacy of years of torture in a Vietnamese prison. Um, and talk about someone who who emerged from that chapter of his life determined to make the most of his life and do good for the world. I mean, it, it's extraordinary the examples that men like uh, Bob Dole and John McCain and Bob Kerry have set for us.
0: And Bob Carey, uh, who, by the way, I thought was one of the most charming guys I ever covered on the presidential campaign trail. Charming, smart, also a total loose cannon, but was one of the reasons we all (laughs) like dealing with him. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. We'll have a little more with uh, Frank Bruni and Kevin Riley after these messages. Couple quick notes. Uh, the newest edition of the Political Rewind newsletter is available now. If you don't subscribe and don't get it in your inbox, just go to gpb.org slash newsletters and you'll find it there. Second, I know some of you listeners out there have bought tickets to come see Greg Bluestein talk about his new book, Flipped, on the Georgia uh, uh, elections of 2020 tonight at the Atlanta Jewish Book Festival. Greg and I will be talking about it, and I'm really looking forward to meeting Political Rewind listeners at that event uh, tonight. Frank Bruni, the author of The Beauty of Dusk. And while we're talking about newsletters, Frank, why don't you promote the newsletter that you now write for The New York Times?
2: (laughs) That is very kind of you, yes. I write a newsletter that uh, is delivered to everybody's inboxes at noon Eastern every Thursday, um, and it uh, usually has four parts. The first part is usually a very topical sort of mini column on some aspect of the news of the day. The one that will go out today uh, reflects on uh, uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's hearing um, and how distressing uh, – what kind of – the degree to which it became a distressing circus um, in terms of uh, various culture war things being prosecuted that had nothing to do with her record or anything else. Um, and then it also is a feature that readers love and readers contribute to. It's called For the Love of Sentences. Um, and basically, yeah. I've got all of these committed, wonderful readers who send in examples of great prose from various newspapers and magazines. And then it usually ends with a with a segment called On a Personal Note, where I talk a little bit about my life in Chapel Hill, my dog Regan, who's also, as you know, in the book, Big part of the book. And um, anyway, it's uh, I've got about two hundred thousand subscribers, uh, and uh, it's really a joy to do, and the feedback's been great.
0: Kevin Riley, why haven't you sent uh, Frank some sentence or two from one of your writers at the AJC? I think you should look into. That. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah I, I, I will do that. Absolutely, I made a note actually to uh, to do that. Hey, I have to say something quickly too. Um, I said John Kerry when we were talking about Bob Kerry, and you're yeah, let no, Bob Bob not Kerry. let me get away with that. For sure. Yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, but
0: here's, here's it. But Frank now mentioned the last thing I wanted to talk about, Kevin. You and I both have dogs that we love very much. People know that our dog, Uncle Gus, literally is sitting here on the couch in my studio office at home. He's here every day. He's my live studio audience. Your dog is a big part of your life. And Frank Rooney has Regan. Kevin, I don't know about you, but I thought it was really sweet to read about his relationship with Regan. <laughs>
1: I uh, I enjoyed that part, too. Um, normally, my dog is barking during the show, my Irish setter, McMurray. So that's why I came to the office today, Frank, because uh, he, he's very disruptive and uh, believes he – I think he believes he ought to be on the show. Uh, it's gotten to that point. But, yeah, uh, talk a little bit about Regan and uh, how you talked – I think it was your – was it your brother or brother-in-law out of Regan? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, my brother my, – my, so Regan began her life at 12 weeks old with my younger brother, Harry. Um, and when she was five, I, uh, I wangled her from Harry, um, partly partly by playing the pity card. Like I need some extra joy in my life. I've lost sight in one eye. I figure, hey, if you can't play that card in some productive way, you know, you're you're not you're not, you're not doing things right. Um, but I, I, I'd always loved dogs. I'd had dogs in my life. I hadn't had a dog for many years, but I had this sense, and it, it proved to be correct, that it would be a really healthy thing um, to take on a new responsibility to take on caring for another being um, that that would direct some of the energy that might've gone into excessive worry about my own situation, you know, excessive attention to it. Um, if I kind of lavished care and worry on another being. Um, and that's, that was kind of my impulse in, uh, in with Regan. Um, and uh, it was one of the best decisions I made. I've had her for a little over three years now. Uh, she's eight years old. We do about eight miles a day on the woodland trails around my house in Chapel Hill. Um, you know, uh, she's a good girl who can go off leash and doesn't chase too many deers or doesn't chase them for long. So it feels okay. Like it's not abusive to them. Um, and uh, it's just, uh, it's just really, it's an important thing. You asked me before about a shift in perspective, etc. Wow. I felt very strongly when this happened and, and, and that, that portion of the book that the audio of the book that you played kind of got into this a little bit or, or the portion that you read about the kind of inklings that the day is forever. And thank you for showcasing mm-hmm. that. I felt very strongly after this happened. Um, you have no idea what the future holds. This illustrated that for me, things that, joys that you think you want to embrace soon, experiences that you think you want to have soon. Why not have them now? Why not make soon tomorrow or next week? Because you just don't know if you're going to be able to manage it or finesse it so i had always said i'm going to get a dog again i got a dog again i had always said i've been living in manhattan too long i want to go somewhere with more trees and with a different feel and a different pace i pulled the trigger on that and here i am in chapel hill north carolina um i feel i felt strongly after this happened to me and i feel strongly now why wait and Regan, it for me is an emblem of why wait Um, And she's the proof that waiting is silly because nothing has brought me more joy in the last three years of my life. Well, (laughs) apart from my siblings. After my
1: siblings, nothing has brought me more joy over the last three years than than Regan. So, Frank, I'm going to ask you something that that I'll just say the book compels me to ask you, and it is this. I mean, obviously, you've got a successful book. You're doing this book tour. You you know, you've worked with The New York Times. You're teaching at Duke. But how are you doing, Really?
2: Thank you. Well, thank you for the question. I'm doing well, because and I'm doing well, and I love the way you asked that question, because I'm doing well not because of any of those things. Those are like the details uh, of my life. I'm doing well because my head is in such a good place, because, um, well, I would love to turn back the clock uh, and have perfect vision again and write clean copy that I produce in a nanosecond, Um while I wish this had never happened to me in most ways, um, this having happened to me, I have become um, a calmer person. I have become a person who is more confident about his own strength. Um, I've become someone who feels much less trepidation about the future and the mysteries of that future. And I've become someone who is so, I mean, infinitely better um, at, in any situation on any given day, turning my gaze toward the positive, turning my gaze toward the things that are sources of comfort and pleasure. Um, I don't drink I don't drink a glass of wine in the same way anymore. Um, I pour it and I behold its color and I'm appreciative for that color and I take that first sip and I sit with that first sip in a way I didn't before. And I was a restaurant critic, right? I mean, I was supposed to be someone who really paused and favored over that. I am doing really well um, because of habits of mind and facets of character. Um, that has been uh, the unlikely bequest of this medical crisis.
0: And that's why your book is so powerful and why it certainly moved me deeply, and I know it did you as well, Kevin Riley, because um, your life has become an example for us of how we can take accept our own frailties, our own afflictions, and uh, and yet not get mired down in in self-pity. Um, and and move forward in as positive a way as possible. How, the last thing, and this is kind of clinical, but um, you've now lived without the sight of one eye for what, almost five years now? Or five years, it happened in 2017. How has your vision adjusted? For a while, you talk in the early parts of the book about your left, it was hard to compensate your left eye trying to make up for what the right eye didn't see. How are you right now in terms of vision and what you see? I, you struggle with certain things.
2: Yeah, you no, know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have very serviceable vision. Um, and, it, you know, I would say I'm, I'm good, but it's erratic. There are better and worse days because, as you mentioned, there's this phenomenon where you have a, a bad eye that often tries to get in on the action and screw with your good eye. Over time, your brain sort of does a better job of telling your writer, you know, telling your bad eye to go to cease and desist, but it doesn't do it in a, in a steady, neat arc. It's more of a jagged line. Um, and so I have good days, I have bad days, and I adapt. I mean, I have made adjustments in my life. I now listen to rather than read probably two-thirds of the books I consume, and that is because uh, I don't read as well as I used to. Um, I write mm-hmm. in less- I write in larger font sizes. You know, I, used to, I think I used to write in 11 or 12. Now I write in like 16. Um, and God forbid I have to give a speech. I, 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 I upsize it to 18 or 20 you know, font size. Um, but, you know, again, in terms of wanting to dwell on the positive, in, 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 not in a Pollyanna way, but in a real way, if this had happened to me 50 years ago, I wouldn't have had an infinite library of audiobooks. If this had happened to me 25 years ago, I would not have had the word processing capabilities and instantaneous adjustments. Um, so it is, it, is, it is a real stroke of good fortune. I shouldn't have used the word stroke. Um, to have had this happen to me in, in this era of time, um, because to go back to your question, I do just fine.
0: That's, that is such a good thing to hear. Um, we're out of time. Kevin? Uh, what a pleasure it's been, hasn't it, to talk to Frank
1: Bruni about this? Um, yeah, thank, thank you, Frank. Ke- for, yeah, thank you for finding the time, and thank you for the book.
0: That's exactly right, Very Kevin much. Riley, the edit- Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and Frank Bruni, uh, the author of The Beauty of Dusk, um, a memoir about how he uh, was able to uh, deal with uh, the loss of vision in one eye and yet turn it into uh, allowing him to live a richer and more meaningful life. Uh, You can get it uh, certainly online, but I always get notes from people saying, please tell your listeners to get their books from independent booksellers. And if there's one close to you, I think that's a really wonderful idea. That's it for us today. Frank Bruni, thank you so much. And as Kevin said, thank you for writing this book, Frank.
2: Thank you for, for spending this time with me. I appreciate it so much. That's it for
0: us uh, for today. Natalie Mendenhall and Sam Burmistos, thank you for your work on the show. As always, uh, we'll be back with a brand new edition. We'll talk politics again tomorrow on Political Rewind. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.